0: You're listening to the Agony Column news report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more 5 days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotron.com/agony.
1: The sea was an indigo blue. Rima was becoming a connoisseur of pacific colors. A pale translucent blue near the shore at dawn, but a silvered blue farther out, and the color of sunrise reflected on the sheen of the sand. Green waves on a sunny afternoon, though purple in the shade of the dredge, throwing white water into the air. Indigo after the sunset, and then black, but with lights playing over the surf in small, unexpected reds, greens, and yellows. There was a great deal to see, even at night.
0: Karen Joy Fowler is the author of Sarah Canary, which won the Commonwealth Award for Best First Novel by Californian, Sister Noon, a Penn Faulkner finalist, and the Jane Austen Book Club, a New York Times bestseller. She won the World Fantasy Award for her collection Black Glass, and the Nebula for her short story What I Didn't See, and another Nebula this year for always. Her new book is Wits End. Thank you for joining me, Karen.
1: Thank you, Rick.
0: Karen, I, I, One of the things, of course, that strikes anybody who lives in Santa Cruz about this novel is that it's about Santa Cruz and how well you get Santa Cruz. But you weren't actually living here when you wrote the book, were you?
1: I was not, but I was visiting a great deal. uh, My daughter went to school here. She, She got a Ph.D. at Long Marine Lab, so she had been here for quite some time, and I had for quite some time been spending spending time here. But I also, because we were planning on moving to Santa Cruz, used the excuse of the book as a way to get to know the place and came over a lot with research on my mind, went to the boardwalk and talked to people and did the wineries, the horror of research, one Zinfandel after another.
0: Uh, I, I can tell from your from the tone of your voice that it, it carries through in, in the prose That You really like this place, and and could you talk a little bit about how you go about architecting and creating Santa Cruz in a novel?
1: I do really like this place. Uh, I like this place partly because it's got so much natural beauty and partly because um, it's got so many odd people on the street corners and in the doorways, and uh, every one of them uh, a possible story, an interesting story. Usually, um, in the past with most of my books uh, i've I've had historical settings and and so these are not places that I can go and look at, although I can often go and look at what's left, um, which I did actually in this book with Holy City. but there has I've always thought that there was something crucial in my process in setting my books in a, an imaginary place that that it's usually the way I begin to think about a book is to imagine the place in which the book is going to take place and, and to research the place, usually from other books, in which the book is going to take place. And I've always felt in some, you know, almost uh, mystical way that this just revs my imagination up somehow, that, uh, that I can then move from imagining that place to imagining my characters and my story. Uh, and, and that this is a very crucial part of, of sort of greasing my way in. Um, so uh, the first time that I dispensed with that was with the Jane Austen Book Club, which I set in my actual hometown at the time, which was Davis, and and, and in fact part of it is in my actual house, and so this was the first time that I that I set a book in a place that I could see all around me every time I looked out the window. And Santa Cruz, I was kind of splitting the difference between those since since I did come to see it. But since I was not sitting here looking out the window when I wrote it, it was, it was a, a bit of both methods, I think.
0: You talk about Santa Cruz. One of the things you say that is really interesting to me is that there's the place they did know earthquakes and vampires and a place they didn't know, the downtown clown stalker. (laughs) And you capture these two poles quite well.
1: Thank you. I think I, perhaps, um, perhaps I did have a a sort of edge going into the book in terms of of it being an imaginary place as well as a real place to me, because I did grow up uh, at least through junior high school and college in the Bay Area. I went to high school in Palo Alto and college in Berkeley and the campus of Santa Cruz was just kind of getting started when I was in Berkeley, and those uh, those two dreadful serial killers were operating at just that time. So, I did have a sense of Santa Cruz, um, f- uh, you know, f- for many years prior to being a writer, and certainly prior to writing this book as a place where, with the boardwalk and the beach, which we sometimes came to when I was in high school, and then as this, as this. Uh, seemingly very dangerous place when I was in college where, um, I, and I was not coming to Santa Cruz but you know I had this vision in my head of the redwood trees and um and and dangerous dangerous people.
0: Bodies being driven that uh, drugged up out of the mulch.
1: Exactly exactly. You Which makes it sound like I must have written a very, very dark book with lots of bodies, and of course I did not.
0: No, this book is, is genuinely full of light and the, the stuff of life and families. And that's one of the things you capture quite well is the, the way a, a family dynamic develops, and, and as particularly the way women look at families, large families. There's a great uh, passage where Rima, who's the main character in the book, um, is talking about how she always wants a large family.
1: Thank you. Um, I, I had somebody recently tell me that they thought the book was a ghost story, which had not occurred to me, but but which I l- liked a lot when I heard it. I think um, in Rima's case, everything that she says and thinks about family is filtered through the lens of the fact that she has lost every member of her own fairly small family. But um, but there's a lot in the book about the internet, and so t- uh, the, the sort of ghostly element that this reader was talking to me about was this new way to retain part of, um, of the people that you lose if they've, in the case of Rima's father, he has actually posted a kind of memorial site to himself with a lot of his old columns and uh, as he, he was a newspaper columnist and uh, bits of his life so that, so that there is this kind of ghostly presence that Rima can access anytime she wants, although she feels it represents it very poorly, so she mostly doesn't.
0: Give us the, the setup for the book so we can kind of understand where it's
1: Well, I wanted a very classic kind of beginning uh, of the sort that I quite like, um, which is the orphan arriving at the spooky mansion. So in my case, the orphan is Rima. She's not a young orphan. She's about 29 years old. And the spooky mansion is, is the house with End, which is on a cliff overlooking Twin Lakes State Beach in Santa Cruz here. And, um, and the woman whose house it is, is named Addison Early. She's a very, very, very successful mystery writer. She's, she's based very vaguely on Agatha Christie, who was the first writer I ever, ever met. Um, again, when I was in high school, Agatha Christie's husband came and did a an event at Stanford, a slideshow of an archaeological dig that he was involved in. And I went to see it, pretending a great interest in archaeology, when really all I wanted was to get a glimpse of Agatha Christie, who who did not disappoint. She was there, she was wearing a huge mink coat, and she was wearing bright pink bedroom slippers. And I just fell in love with her instantly. Uh, and And also I wanted... A mystery writer who was enormously successful. And I think that the kind of success that Agatha Christie had is actually beyond my ability to imagine it. So I've I've simply gone as far as I'm capable of going in imagining a very, very successful writer.
0: Now this house that you create called Wits End, it's quite reminiscent of the house of Jim Houston. <laughs> yes,
1: several people have mentioned that to me. I did mention to uh, Jim and Jeannie that I w- would be using their house, um, a- and yet there has been a kind of, uh, often when people mention that it's their house to me, a-, a sort of alarm, I feel, as if some sort of plagiarism must be involved in stealing someone else's house. I, at the time I wrote the book, I had not been in the Houston's house. Uh, I have now been in um, so the inside of the house, and in fact the outside of the house, neither of those things resemble the Houston's house, and the Houston's do not live right on the beach, as as my Agatha Christie stand-in does. But so the, the, the main point of reference, and the main thing I wanted from the Houston house is the fact that it was built by a survivor of the Donner Party, and I wanted a book that was about survivors, and so I just really liked that fact, and I took it.
0: One thing, as I read this book, uh, and a lot of it's about takes place, a large portions of the narrative are actually excerpts from Addison's books, and it made me think that books are places too.
1: Oh, I like that. Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, certainly we use words like transported when we feel ourselves sinking deeply into a book. And I, I, am myself, and I'm betting you were too as a child, one of those people who could read a book, and when your mother called you for dinner, there would be a moment where you actually couldn't remember who you were, because you'd been somewhere else entirely.
0: And that That's one of the things that... Uh The the best books do is they create a a place that's so vivid, and this book certainly succeeds in that, that you can go back afterwards and visit it kind of asequentially, as if it were a vacation or a a memory you have.
1: My friend Sean Stewart gave me a a nomenclature that I find useful to think about sometimes, uh, about different kinds of books. and He said that some books are like rides that you take, uh, and some books are like worlds that you visit. And, um, and I think that kinds of books, well, I think I like to read both kinds of books, but I think that the books that I write, I I am always trying to create a world for you to visit.
0: Uh, in this world, of course, that you've created is, is based very much on the real world, and one of the things that you capture quite well, it, there's a lot of different kinds of writing in this book. Uh, some of it's very funny, some of it's, metafictional it's fiction within fiction and the part that intrigued me was your place descriptions are really beautiful and lyrical, and you you bring into this prose that's uh I think almost markedly different from some of the other prose in the book could you talk about writing about place and and how you craft that prose
1: I'll try um I to you know to Start way back, and therefore give you probably a much longer answer than you were hoping for um, when I was young i um, partly I think because I was such a avid reader, I needed glasses very early in my life um, but did not wear them for much of my Junior high and high school, I was I was too vain to. I could not wear contacts, and I did not wish to wear glasses. So, I spent many of my formative years kind of unable to see anything around me, and I I believe that as a result that I have a quite a good ear when I do dialogue. Um, that that comes fairly easily to me, uh, and and language comes more easily to me, but. Visual um, details are something that I have to do very consciously. That uh, you know, if I I am not a person, for example, who 15 minutes after you leave will be able to tell anyone what you are wearing, I will simply not have noticed. Um, So I've had because I don't, in fact, notice. I've had to train myself when I write to pretend to notice things that I actually don't. Um, When I began to write, I. I began with poetry. So a lot of what I sort of did as, as a training myself to, to think about language and to think about um, rhythms uh, was also to try to think about images. When I also, when I started, uh, and, and I did, you know, a lot of people come to writing, I think, because they have a story. They really want to tell. And that was not my route. I, I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to learn how to write and finding the stories I want to tell is something that uh, does not often come easily to me. But so, so a lot of what I did in the early days of, of my writing career was very deliberate kind of exercises that I would set up for myself and skills that I would try to improve or acquire Um, I started thinking about character almost exclusively. And uh, after doing that for some time, um, began to try to market some of the stories that I had written. I was writing short stories at the time um, unsuccessfully for the very good reason that they were not very good. Um, But I began to get this very tiresome, repetitive excuse for not accepting me which was that there appeared to be no plot in any of my stories and so I thought oh well fine plot then and I spent the next several years trying to think about plot and acquire some sort of structural sense and and work on that and then um and then I did begin to publish some of my short stories but I thought well the the kind of thing that was left that I had not focused on a lot was place and and of course you know even even to pull these things apart as I did to try to think about them is to misunderstand a lot of what writing is because they are absolutely fused together if the final piece is to be successful. But I think I sort of imagined that that place was um, you know something that I would think about for a bit and then probably circle back around to character or something and instead place really is where I've landed. It's the thing that I think is the most important to me as a writer. It's probably the thing that's often the most important to me as a reader. It seems to me, for my taste in general, the difference between a book I love and a book I may enjoy reading but will never pick up again, is is how fully I can inhabit the world of the book. And that depends primarily on um, how well i'm uh, i'm drawn to the place uh, which is not to say that i like long careful descriptions of landscapes because i i don't i tend to skip them when i read in a shocking shocking way so it it can you know the the creation of the sense of place can be done very quickly but um but i am very dependent on it in in order to really live in the book
0: and one thing that that i noticed in this book is that you grasp about Santa Cruz the the variety of landscapes that are you find in a really small geographical area i mean this is a very small city it's a small well that place. it's
1: what is so wonderful about Santa Cruz it's what's wonderful about the state of California in general and then Santa Cruz just has almost all of it all in a even smaller space
0: and, and you also grasp the the beauty of uh, the suburban life, and, and not just the the nature, but you know the the living next door to people, and and having there's a lot of people in this book that that traverse the place that make it that tie it together, make it so you don't have to do. There aren't a lot of really long descriptions in here, but we really get to know the place via the characters who inhabit it.
1: Thank you. There's um, there. I am a child of the suburbs. And uh, although I think in some wild fantasy life, I picture myself living somewhere wilder, I probably would not be able to manage that. And I know that I can't live in cities. Uh, In fact, my third novel, Sister Noon, is the only one set in an urban landscape. And I just found that unhappy and uncomfortable the whole time. Just people everywhere.
0: We we live in uh, the the Monterey Bay where there's a, a lot of uh, weather and, and weather plays an interesting part in your book in the way you describe the way it changes a place because it, oh, for one thing the weather here can change really rapidly and that uh, that plays a part in the book doesn't it
1: Well and and again plays a part I think in why I'm so fond of this place why why I believe that I will be very happy here. My husband is really a sunny day kind of person, and um, he grew up in L.A., and my son lives in L.A., and L.A. is a place where you get up in the morning and it's sunny, and I just find that tiresomely predictable. It it, it really weighs on me, the fact that whatever the weather is in the morning, it's going to be that all day long, and it's probably going to be sunshine. It's just a nightmare. (laughs)
0: uh you also, um, there's a lot of interesting kind of uh, back and forth. When we talk about place and the place in this book, you also create some very small places. And this is one of the things I love are, are the dollhouses. <laughs> what, where did you get that from? That's so interesting. And explain what the dollhouses are, too.
1: Um, in my book, Addison Early, the mystery writer, uses the dollhouses as a way of Plotting her novels, so prior to writing her mystery novels, the first thing that she does is she makes a dollhouse of the murder scene, and and in the process of doing that, figures out what will happen in the novel, and and then is ready to write the novel. I got the idea from a very famous woman um, whose name, of course, I'm now not going to be able to remember. I believe it's Frances Lee, but I could be wrong. And I believe she's from Baltimore, but I could be wrong about that as well. What I know about her is. Um, that she trained police detectives, and that the way she did this training was to make dollhouses of murder scenes. I read about her in a, a magazine on an airplane, um, and was just charmed by the idea of these tiny, tiny, tiny murders. There has been a book, uh, a collection of photographs of her of her murder scenes, has been published. I think it's called The Nutshell murder studies or some, some combination of those words, and I think they're, they're just quite eerie to look at. Um, I, at one point, hoped for one of those on the cover of my book because I, I just think they're fantastic, but my publisher believed since it would not correlate to anything in my book, it would be a different murder with different people that readers would find that annoying, so I was forced to give up on the plan. Uh, let's talk a
0: little bit about Addison she's an interesting character and while you suggest that uh, she's based on Agatha Christie as I was reading it I was thinking reading the novel I was thinking this sounds maybe an awful lot like Karen Joy Fowler as well and in particular I would there this novel for a novel that is about family and about place there's a lot of other things that you manage to weave through this novel themes and and politics plays a big part in this novel
1: okay i was I was going to protest that i'm nothing like addison early, but you now now that you say politics i see I see where the connection is yes, I am a extremely political person it's I have um spent in the the years of the bush presidency, increasing amount of time on political blogs, keeping my fury evergreen. Uh, you know, every 20 minutes I have to check in to see what depredations my government has committed while I showered or ate breakfast. And so Addison and I do absolutely share that. And I, and I just hope for so many reasons that there will be a Democrat in the White House come January, but one of the reasons is I think that I will then be able to relax a little bit. And it's not that the depredations won't continue, but I won't, I'm hoping I won't worry about them quite so much. Um, but the other things about her, um, I feel that uh, she is in in my head clearly kind of a, a, a very solitary person, uh, very inwardly focused on, on herself and her books and uh, in her household, in a way that I am not partly because I have children and just c- cannot be allowed to focus so inwardly um, and that she 's j- just ever so much more successful than I am her her fans and her readers are a kind of constant annoyance to her, and I rarely meet my fans and readers, so I cannot say the same when I do meet my fans and readers they 're always delightful. Uh-
0: your book has a lot of uh um, reflections, inversions, uh mirror images, characters who are characters in the, your book, but also characters in the books being written by the author Addison Early. Could you talk about I know,
1: that? it's it's a nightmare, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I I read it through um Prior to publishing it, uh, you know, by, of course, you read it so many times when you're writing it that you soon cannot begin to see the words on the page. It just makes no sense at all to you, and um, and then there's a fairly long period where you're looking at it to copy edit it, and you're you know you're just reading it again and again and again, and and again. As I said, you just lose all sight of it. So just just before it was published, when it was actually in galleys, and I had not looked at it for a while. I picked it up to read it, thinking, "I wonder, wonder what this is going to look like now." And in the middle, I thought, "Even I don't know what's happening."
0: Well, I, actually, I think it's pretty easy to it's easy to keep track of. But I, I, I want to ask you, when you were cre- creating the prose written by by Addison early, could you talk about doing that? How how do you write? the work of another writer within your own work.
1: I, I w- am happy to talk about doing that because that proved t- to be very, very difficult. I I went to a writing workshop um, given in Taos, New Mexico, called Rio Hondo with a bunch of of other published writers. It um, happens every year, and often I get invited, and if I can go, I go. And what I took the, the last year that I went was n- nothing from my book, except the sections that were from Addison's book, which is called Ice City. So I took all of the excerpts from Ice City and I passed them out to these people who know me and um, have, have known me for a long time. And I said, you know, I know you'll be able to make no sense of the plot because it's just excerpts and, you know, I'm not concerned about the characters. I just want to know, does this sound like me or does this sound like it could be a different writer? And they all said, well, this sounds exactly like you. There's every, every, every word, every move sounds just exactly like you. So I thought, well, that, that's disappointing. And they, um, what I had tried to do was to read a book, a, a couple of books, with, uh, I thought, very distinct voices and hope that those kinds of rhythms would permeate. and that. Uh, so I was trying to imitate, essentially, a, a different voice when I wrote them. And what the group at Rio Hondo said, that I needed just not to do that, but just to strip everything out, just to try to make it as bare as possible. Um, and and you know that a lot of my sort of typical flourishes were not going to be the kinds of books I w- was suggesting Addison wrote anyway the the more Agatha Christie kinds of books so so I came home and I did that instead and then I had a couple more people look at it and they said better better so
0: well to me it was it was very it's just striking how it seemed to in a way almost jarring because it seemed so different. It did seem very different from the rest of the prose. Right oh, that of, like, is
1: wonderful to hear.
0: Uh, it was like I was reading and all of a sudden, well, this is kind of like a, 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 a... I could almost see the paperback book that I would be reading it from. That was the feeling I got as I read it. I could say, where's my, where's the cheesy, torn-up paperback version of this for me to read?
1: Well, that's what I was hoping for, but achieved only with great difficulty. I. Uh,
0: We also have uh, a lot of interesting parallels between Addison's childhood and Rima's childhood, and the real character, the the characters of the character of Rima's father versus Rima's real father versus his vision of himself on the memorial website. (laughs) Could you talk about like uh, when you do this? Is this all organic? Do you just like start at page one and go to page three hundred and thirty-five, or? Do you have some kind of backlog notes and and, um, sketches to help you keep track of what's going on?
1: Uh, Kind of all of the above. I I can only move through a book sequentially because I don't, in general, know where it's going to go. So, you know, I I, I have met writers um, and so admire writers who can work out of sequence. And uh, Dorothy Allison has told me that she does the the high emotional the hot scenes first and then you know the the rest of it is just sort of stitching these these together in a continuous narrative but i think you you know i wouldn't even know what the hot scenes were when i started um so it seems to me that you must have a level of um a vision about the book as a whole to to work in any other way but sequentially so you know, I'm I'm moving from page 3 to page 4, from page 4 to page 5, although I also rewrite a great deal. So by the time I get to page 5, I've probably rewritten page 1 15 times and, and will continue to rewrite page 1 uh, as I go forward. But at a certain point, when I do begin, I've made some decisions, I do begin to see what plots I might like to follow and, and where they might take me. Um, then I do sort of stop and step back and try to create a, a kind of outline, a sort of structure of how I hope the book is going to work and where which often does involve moving scenes around so although I've imagined that I've written it sequentially in point of fact, often I haven't often um, in in this book in particular, because I was thinking about murder mysteries because of Addison's books. Um, and vaguely thought that I was writing a murder mystery for quite some time until it was pointed out to me that I wasn't. Um, I had a a dead body show up on about page 220, and my editor um, responding to the first version of the book she saw said, you know, that is just way too long to wait for the dead body, and we just really have to get to the dead body quicker. So I said oh i thought that made sense and i looked and looked and looked and i finally called her up and i said you know i can do it by page 150 but there's just there's no way it can be any earlier than that my agent said we should title the book the dead body on page 150 keep people encouraged
0: uh could you talk about uh creating addison's background because it's a really unique background um her, her, her situation with her mother and her supposed father, where it's did you a, get that?
1: I got that, um, it's a story that was left over from research I did for my third novel, Sister Noon. Sister Noon takes place in San Francisco in the 1890s, and as part of researching that novel, I just read lots and lots and lots of newspapers from, um, you know, the great thing about being in California and setting a book in San Francisco is that you have access to there were about six newspapers being published and you have and and, uh, the state library has copies that go all the way back so so I like to when I can do that just try to get a sense of what people might have been talking about over the dinner table based on what was in the newspapers at that time and sometimes you just have these moments of shock where as as I was reading for Sister Noon I came across across this description on the front page of the Chronicle of some murders that had taken place in Whitechapel, and I realized that I'm reading about Jack the Ripper um, in the accounts that are contemporary to, to those murders. In this case, I was, I was looking at the obituaries, as I frequently do, and, um, and just came across this very odd story of a man who, whose sister had just died but everybody had believed she was his wife and his explanation as is in my book that um, he had come to stay with his sister when she was pregnant because she was alone and would need help with the baby and because they shared a last name and because there was a baby everybody assumed that they were a married couple and that he felt it would damage her reputation to say otherwise so for something like 30 years, he had lived in this house with everybody believing that he was the father of this child and the husband of this woman. But now his sister was dead. He thought it would be nice to get married himself, perhaps, and wanted people to know that he had actually not ever been married. So I, I was just uh, really taken by that story, and so I gave it to Addison.
0: One of the uh, elements of place in this novel is that you have a, a character who wants to create a fictional, make a fictional place real in downtown Santa Cruz, and, and this is a kind of a typical Santa Cruz uh, uh, idea. Could you talk a little bit about coming up with that? A- and the Are idea you talking
1: about kind of the Second Life? The uh,
0: well, no, I'm talking about it, uh, uh, Martin's scheme. Oh, oh. To to create the uh, bar.
1: Oh right. Well, Martin is a, uh, uh, there's a, the Addison's household has three people in it during most of my book, one of whom is Addison, one of whom is Rima, the orphan who has arrived, and one of whom is Tilda, the uh, housekeeper. And Tilda um, has a son named Martin from whom she's been estranged for quite some time, but he he shows up in the book and he's got very much a kind of get-rich-quick sort of mentality, and he sees in Addison and in his mother's relationship to Addison a lot of money-making potential, and one of them is that Addison's mystery books mostly take place in Santa Cruz, and um, as you can take a kind of Dickens tour of London, he's imagining a sort of Addison or early tour of Santa Cruz, but in order to make it all worthwhile. The, the the main feature that's needed, he feels, is is a bar, which, again, the, the, the levels of what's real and what's not become confusing to me, even when I try to talk about it, because inside Addison's books, there is a bar called Ice City, but even inside the books, it's an imaginary bar. It's a bar that um, her detective pretends he goes to when he's feeling particularly low so Martin wishes to take this imaginary bar in these fictional books and make it a real place that people can go to Uh,
0: I also wanted to talk about one of the things you do so well in this book which is get the internet and there's one of the things parts I I found just most enjoyable was was the Wikipedia war (laughs) Have you ever been involved in one of these? Sounds- I have
1: never been involved. Um, at the, Wikipedia is um, my my main attempts to do anything with Wikipedia. First of all, I had this idea because um, one of the things we haven't mentioned that's in the book as well is the Holy City cult, which was from the 20s to the 60s. And I had this thought at one point that I would write, because I'd done all this research on holy city that i would write the wikipedia entry and then post it on wikipedia and then quote it in my book because it would have exactly what i needed for my book because i would have written it but i went to the wikipedia site that already existed on holy city and i thought oh no this is actually a really good site i can't i can't really improve on it and, and nor sadly can i absolutely quote from it so i had to make up a wikipedia site in my book which is not the real Wikipedia site, which was my original intention, but um, on one occasion I found something on Wikipedia that needed to be fixed. There was a it was it was a link that just took you not to the place where the article suggested it took you, but took you to some irrelevant place instead. And I probably spent I don't know an hour and a half trying to figure out how to alert somebody how to make a change, where to even post the information that it needed to be fixed. I I began to think of it as this great sleeping beast that I was kicking, and I just could not find a way to wake it up, so I gave up.
0: We're going to take a brief break from the interview with Karen Joy Fowler to hear her read a passage from her new novel, Wits End.
1: In Ice City, she updated the cult from the 30s to the early 60s, moved it from Oroville to the trailer park in Clear Lake, and enlarged its numbers. These are the things she'd kept, the name Brother Isaiah and the cult's fundamental defining feature. Brother Isaiah had claimed to be immortal, and he'd promised his followers, each and every one of them, an endless life of their very own. Time is money, always will be, world without end, so you mustn't expect that immortality will ever come cheap. Both Brother Isaiah's, the real and the fictional, got rich selling it. The Oroville group ended when shortly after gathering and fleecing his flock, Brother Isaiah died of a massive heart attack. In the Ice City version, the first death belongs to the whistling man. He dies in an apparent suicide. The Ice City Brother Isaiah responds by reassuring his followers that suicide is a special case, a door left open. Immortality, he tells them, isn't meant to eliminate freedom of choice but the man's son is not so sure his father killed himself. It is this son who brings in Maxwell Lane and sets in motion the chain that will end with two more deaths, the second belonging to brother Isaiah himself and the third to Bim Lanissel's wife. In the real world, there was a tenuous connection between the Oroville cult and Holy City. When the Oroville cult failed, Father Riker had offered to take in the survivors. He attached a couple of conditions. There would be none of that living forever nonsense. And they had to shave their beards, cut their hair, and generally clean themselves up. Holy City, Father Riker said, was not interested in slobs. Among his own followers, Father Riker was known as the Comforter. There is no record suggesting that any of the immortals accepted his offer.
0: Now we'll return to the interview. You mentioned Holy City. This, of course, plays a big part in your book, as do cults. And, and you know, Santa Cruz authors like cults. Lori King wrote a book about cults as well. <laughs> well, tell well us a I, little I,
1: about. I too, I, you know, I told you I was a child of the suburbs. I'm also a child of the '60s, so I come to cults as a fish comes to water.
0: <laughs> well, Holy City, as as a novel a place, you do do a fabulous job evoking Holy City. How much time did you spend around there? Did you take pictures, or what did you do?
1: I went down. Um, there's very little left. Uh, I think the one house, the, the house that Riker, um, who was the head of Holy City, lived in, is still there, but it's private property and not, not a place that you can actually go get very close to. Um, and that's on one side of the old Santa Cruz Highway. On the other side is what used to be the old post office, I believe is still there, but is now a glass-blowing factory. And so I, I went to that, and a man named Tom Stanton um, works in that, in that place. And he came to to Holy City a, a few years after the cult ended, so he had no personal connection or, or knowledge of the cult. But, but just, I think, by dint of being there, he does have a wonderful collection of photographs and many, many newspaper articles, and it was just enormously generous with his time took me around the parts of the site that I was allowed to to look at. And um, I just just spent a delightful afternoon with him. Oddly, he told me that the day that I arrived and started asking him questions about Holy City, David Arquette had also arrived. We, We actually passed on the way in and out of the parking lot as he was looking for movie locations. And Tom Stanton told me that he had waited for years for somebody to write a book or do a movie about Holy City, and yet here we had arrived on the very same day. And yet I think my book is not so completely about Holy City as to please him. I'm I'm betting, and I'm betting that David Arquette was just scouting spooky locations and is not going to write a movie about Holy City either. So he waits. He waits patiently.
0: If for, for immo- immo- immortally, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about the the Holy City cult and also your story always, which feeds into this this novel. I, did this come out of uh, like some kind of like growth off the side of the novel?
1: Yes, that's um, that's exactly what it did. And it, it came out of the part that I read about the Orville cult of the immortals and um, and Holy City. I, the, everything I know about the Oroville cult is in that section that I read. I have absolutely not one bit of information beyond that, but I was, uh, again, just kind of enchanted at the idea of this cult of immortals who, who, uh, for whom the leader had died so quickly, and, uh, and what I did in the story always was to fuse those two cults together, so you have from, uh, from the Oroville cult, the idea that they're immortals and that they've been brought together by a man named Brother Isaiah, um, and then from Holy City, many other elements. The, the location, uh, in always is the Holy City location in the Santa Cruz Mountains, not the, not the Oroville location, and, um, and the arcade. It seemed to me that far more than having any particular doctrine or, or uh, code, that he wished to share that Father Riker mainly was a money maker and that Holy City was mainly a roadside arcade where you could spend your money in many, many ways. You could get a haircut, you could gas up your car, you could, uh, there was a petting zoo, there was a telescope, there was, there was a radio really a station, zoo. there was really a petting zoo. Um, the sign for the petting zoo, the Holy City Zoo, was, I Bought at auction, or, or in some strange way, made its way into San Francisco, where it became the name of a, of a comedy club, for several years. The, there was a comedy club called the Holy City Zoo, where people like Robin Williams and Margaret Cho performed in their, in their early years. So, so yes, I'm quite certain there was a petting zoo. <laughs>
0: Uh, this novel, in terms of the writing styles, it's, there's a variety of writing styles in here. You have lists, you have excerpts from Wikipedia, you have the the metafiction stuff from websites. Um, and, uh, could you talk about mixing those styles? And, and a- as a writer, you seem to effortlessly carry us from one to the other, when you don't really notice it until afterwards. I think, wow, I was looking through, and I said, there's so many styles in this book.
1: I uh, um when i turned the manuscript in of course every time i switch styles it's a it's an issue for the person the book designer so yes i got kind of a a response of many exclamation points when they looked at, <laughs> at what i was going to be asking them to do although i think they did a a wonderful job of it i think um you know one one of the difficulties for me, uh, when I'm writing a contemporary novel and I, I wish a novel to feel like my life in this period feels that email is such a such a feature of my day, and yet email is is actually a quite an uninteresting form, I think. Um, I did a section in the Jane Austen Book Club I was doing a Quick sort of mimic of Lady Susan was, which is an epistolary novel, but updating it. So I did several email exchanges towards the end, which are my Lady Susan pastiche, um, and and I, I think that works well in the Jane Austen book club, but mainly because it's so brief. There, are, you know, it's like five exchanges, and then it's over, and I don't ask you to read email ever again in the book. So. Um, I um I don't know ex- exactly what else to say except that I do spend an enormous amount of time on the internet, just a shocking amount of time on the internet. So, um, the the kind of methods of uh, of communication are things that I've I've at least experienced. I find oddly I feel when I write email that I use exclamation points, which I rarely use in any other setting and which always seemed to me um, cheesy and kind of appalling in any other setting and yet for some reason there's something about email that makes it so easy for your tone to be misunderstood that I find, and I I will not stoop to little smiley faces, but apparently it forces exclamation points out of me.
0: (laughs) Uh, Also I was thinking As a reader, we're reading about the Internet, and most I think a lot of your readers are probably sitting within, you know, arm's length of a computer or a short walk from a computer. As a writer, do you think, especially when you're writing stuff about the Holy See, do you think that that you're writing stuff that's going to, when your reader sets down the book, they're going to run to the Internet and try to look stuff
1: up? I guess that had not even occurred to me, although... If I were reading a book with um, the mix of fact and fiction that I tend to put in all my books, that's probably what I would do. As a matter of fact, I did that quite recently with a book um, uh, about Edward Curtis that uh, Marion Wiggins wrote, The Shadow Catcher, last year or the year before, that, you know, obviously there was a lot of research on Edward Curtis, the, the photographer of Indian tribes, and And yet there were things that I thought, huh, is that true, is that true, is that true? So, yes, I did exactly that. I set the book down, and I went to the Internet and could not find the answer to any of my questions.
0: Uh, You have a lot of fun, too, with uh, Santa Cruz characters, um, from Pamela Price to Tilda. What a lovely name. (laughs) This is uh, your home directory, correct? (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes. I'd put a story in the book about Santa Cruz that is actually a true story although I think it will not sound like one that my daughter and I traveled to Malaysia and we were in Borneo in, in the one English language bookstore trying to find something to read on the plane to come home and um and there were uh you know t- some tribal people in the in on the street um with uh, scarification and various um, tribal ornaments uh, on their bodies and and two kids came in with their, particularly with their earlobes opened in the the way, you know, that you can you can pierce your ears and then make the hole larger and larger and larger extend the earlobes and we realized moments after they came in that they actually were from Santa Cruz that they were not local at all and that the people in the bookstore who were selling books um who were Borneo natives were just enormously amused by them kind of charmed but also enormously amused when they these two people left the store there was just laughter behind the cash register (laughs)
0: um uh, observing politics uh you observe it but also there's some interesting thoughts about you say, uh, talk about librarians versus the Patriot Act, which I thought was a very uh, astute observation.
1: Well, I love librarians. I, if I could write nothing but books in which librarians were the heroes and heroines, I would, I would probably feel that was a job well done. But um, th- there were a number of cases. in the early days of the Patriot Act and probably still ongoing. You know, so many of these cases are now shrouded in secrecy and nobody involved in them is allowed to even mention that they exist, where it did seem to me that um, as part of the Patriot Act the things that we checked out of libraries and the things that we read were being tracked and were being asked for and that the librarians were holding the line when almost nobody else in the country seemed willing to, you know, certainly the Patriot Act went through Congress with very little opposition or discussion, as did the um, national ID laws, as did, uh, a- as did all of the stuff that we're now finding out about uh, the FISA um, courts and, and the decision to dispense with the FISA courts, which I, I remember and the FISA courts were a horrible secret court system that we were supposed to oppose. And now even they are not sufficient, sufficiently secret.
0: Could you tell us what you're working on now? Have you started a new book?
1: I was working on a book prior to writing the Jane Austen Book Club, which I am returning to with great pleasure and, um, uh, so anybody who's heard an interview from me in the last 10 years will know, will already know that I'm writing a book about chimps and psychologists. And My father was a psychologist, so I feel that I will need to do a lot of research about chimps, but that psychiatrists and psychologists I've got a pretty good handle on.
0: That sounds like fun. We've been speaking with Karen Joy Fowler. Her new book is Wits End. Thank you for joining me, Karen. Thank you.